perhaps we'll uh, perhaps we'll talk about the plane crash. Just got to remember about it, don't I? Welcome to Polar Podcasts, where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives, exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places, where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Holtz. In this episode, we hear from Kent Brooks, Emeritus Professor at the Geological Museum in Copenhagen, about a chance discovery while on a geological expedition to East Greenland in 1966, the implications of which followed him over 40 years. The, the Oxford group was David Bell, Brian Atkins, two undergraduates, who I, I've lost, rather lost touch with now, Richard Norris and David Parrish. Anyhow, the four of us, our idea was to go and visit the, uh, the Lilwa's intrusion, which is, uh, what should we say, 200 kilometres to the, to the northeast of Skergård, a very inaccessible place along the Blossville coast. And, uh, well, it, it's, it, it's an extremely inaccessible place. It had been discovered by, by Wager when he was sailing with Captain Ina Mickelson on the second Scorsby Sund expedition. They sailed down from Scoresby Sun to Amasovic in order to look at the nature of the Blossville coast or the coast between Scoresby Sun and Amasovic with a view to uh, mapping it and, and, and uh, in the event that people would want to, want to go, go between the two places. Nobody ever did, in fact, but they built a, a series of huts along the coastline so that if it, Greenlanders who wanted to sledge from one to the other could sledge, sledge from very, uh, along a line of huts. Anyhow, they came to Wiedemannsfjord and Wager spotted these unusual-looking rocks inland. And he went with Captain Einar Mikkelsen onto the Kronborg Glacier uh, in an attempt to go and see what these rocks were. He thought they were cyanites. A cyanite is a fairly unusual sodium and potassium-rich magmatic rock. Uh, and uh, they, they, uh, they weren't able to get across the Kronborg Glacier, so they never found out. And we, we thought this was a... This was a a, a, suit, a suitable sort of target we could we could go go and solve this problem. Being being naive, still naive, even even though we'd been to Greenland before and found out that things didn't work out as you normally planned. <laughs> Anyhow, we were dumped by the Norwegian ship there, and it didn't take us very long to find out that we couldn't get across the Kronborg Glacier either. <laughs> it was a pretty horrific place, and uh, we decided maybe we could outflank it by going inland. Well, this was when we when we found this crashed plane, which was uh, to play a, lo- a, lo- a long part in, in my uh, my life. It carried on inf- influencing me for the next thirty or forty years. We were going up the glacier, and it was uh, the, the the sky was blue and the sun was shining, and you couldn't really see anything because we were blinded. And after we we got to the top of a rise on the glacier. And somebody turned around and said, "By God, there's a there's a star on the side of that rock." And we looked at it. Well, it's not a rock. It's a it's a it's a it's a bit of a plane. So we turned around and went back and had a look at this, and it was it was indeed a plane, a crashed plane. That we uh, the the fuselage was intact, but the two the engines had uh, broken away and rolled across the glacier on impact. 
and it didn't take as long to find out there were 11 or 12 uh, corpses on board. Well, uh, we were rather stymied. We couldn't get across the glacier, and so we uh, retreated to our base camp on Fjord and uh, we eventually were relieved there. And we, we, we had a radio, but we couldn't contact anybody with it. We, we, you never could. I mean, there were always these radio blackouts and... Uh, People weren't listening, or they weren't—they weren't manning the channels and stuff. We ne- we never had much joy with radios in the old days, but uh, it then turned out that when we were on our way back to England, we stopped off at the uh, the American Embassy in Reykjavik, and uh, it happened to be a Sunday morning, and we knocked on the door, and some flunky came out, and we said, "We want to see the ambassador." He said, "You can't see the ambassador; it's Sunday morning." So we said, "We want to." Re- we want to report uh, 12 dead American citizens. And he, oh, well, that's, that's different. So the court, the, the ambassador came along and we told him all about it. And we said they're in a very, a very awkward place on a glacier there. And we found them in, uh, in the beginning of August. It's now the middle of September. And we don't think you'll be able to find them because the place will be covered with snow by now. We recommend that any expedition out there to re- retrieve the bodies that we put off until next summer. Well, imagine our surprise when we uh, came back to Oxford. Come about November, we had a message from the American Embassy in London thanking us for our information and saying the U.S. iceberg Atka had been immediately directed to the site and uh, the bodies had been recovered and were returned to America were in the, in the Arlington National Cemetery. Well, never really thought more of that for a long time. Except we did get some letters from the uh, from the family of the crew members also thanking us because the plane it had, it had been originally in, uh, in in Spain and had been transferred to uh, Keflavik, Iceland. It was a, a Neptune called the used for uh, for identifying submarines at this time in the midst of the Cold War. The uh, the Denmark Strait and the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean between uh, Scotland and Iceland were the two routes by which the, the uh, Russian-Soviet nuclear submarines could escape from the Arctic Ocean into the Atlantic. And so they kept constant surveillance of these two sea lanes, and this uh, Neptune, it was used for surveying the Denmark Strait. Well, the plane had gone down in, I think, 1962, and uh, there had been an intensive search with... Uh, as many as 30 planes, I think, covering a huge area, and they continued the search for at least 14 days. It had gone down on the, on the 12th of January. I happen to remember it's the 12th of January, because that's my wife's birthday. And it had gone down in conditions where visibility was very poor, there was heavy snow, and its route had been to uh, fly from Keflavik to uh, sea area off the mouth of Scoresby Sund, then turn east and uh, make a triangular tr- a route back to Keflavik. The week we found the crash, it was uh, far off its route to the west, and it had obviously flowed into the glacier, and we were informed that the radar they had on board would not show up the ice. So that, uh, if, they came, if they were flying over a glacier, they would see the bedrock, but they wouldn't see the ice. And the plane had flown into the ice and, uh, well, been destroyed. It was in reasonably good condition when we found it, in the fact that the fuselage was intact. The nose area was breast smashed, and the engines had uh, torn off and rolled away, but the corpses were strapped into the seats. 
they were wearing survival suits and they were strapped into the seats. And it was all a bit uh, a bit spooky, really, to go in there and see these corpses sitting in their plane seats. Anyhow, at this time we never thought more of it because the, uh, the US Air Force had cleared it up, and, or the Navy had cleared it up, and uh, uh, we wanted any more to think about it. Well, in 1995, I was flying in that area over by the Lilwa's intrusion. That was the one we couldn't reach because we couldn't cross the glacier. But now we're airborne, so there's no problem about that. And I said to the pilot, there used to be a plane crash over the other side of the glacier here, but I don't suppose anything to see now because we're told they'd uh, recovered their bodies and uh, removed the wreckage. Well, uh, if there's one thing that pilots are fascinated by, it's aircraft crashes. Mm. You can't keep him away from an aircraft crash. And he said, well, let's go and have a look. So he zoomed across the glacier and uh, we flew in low, like two or three feet above the ice. And, looking, and he said, there's plenty of wreckage around here still. And there was, yes. And he said, and there are body parts. I said, they can't be body parts. They took them back to, uh, back to the Arlington National Cemetery. Oh, yes, said, there's an arm and a leg over there. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we... Uh, well, we went and rooted around in it. He and the other, the other pilot, they went, they went there on several occasions. And, but uh, we informed the police in Nuke that we'd uh, seen body parts on the glacier there. But we got a reply from them saying they didn't have resources to investigate the matter. So it re remained as it was. And then a few years later, like 1997, I had a contact with a chap called uh, Bob Petway in Kentucky. And he'd heard that I spotted body parts and parts of the plane on the glacier. And it turned out he'd been in this squadron when it was in Spain. And uh, all these guys who died in the crash were his former colleagues. Since he came out of the Navy, he'd worked as a CIA agent. And uh, he was very anxious to do something about this when he heard that body parts had been found of his comrades, former comrades. And he set up a, a petition group to get the Navy to go out and clear the place up and return their bodies for proper burial in the United States. Well, uh, he had an uphill job there because they really weren't interested in uh, spending all that money to have a trip to, to Greenland. But he mobilised public opinion and... Uh, I was rung up by the American ambassador in Copenhagen and invited to, invited to have lunch with him in the embassy, tell my version of it. And uh, I was told that President Bush would be very interested in my comments. <laughs> uh, anyhow, in the end, this all succeeded, but it didn't work out until 2004. Although I'd found the thing again back in 1995, it took to 2004 to get a, a, a naval expedition mounted where they went there with dogs and all kinds of things. I told, I told there would be no problem. They should go if they went in the middle of summer. There'd be no problem because there'd be bare ice at the site. But they uh, had to spend millions of dollars on doing this. It had to be done. You know, every contingent had to be taken care of, and they went with a whole lot of what they call ca cadaver dogs, because uh, they said they might not be able to locate the cadavers. Anyhow, they, I guess the US Navy's got plenty of money once they, once they thought they are going to spend it. So they recovered their bodies and returned them to the US and a whole lot of stuff about where they were going to be buried, whether they were going to go into Arlington National Cemetery. They had a communal grave there, or whether they were going to return to their families for burial in their home place. Anyhow, by 2009, 
They had a ceremony in the uh, Naval Air Force Base at Jacksonville in Florida, and they got another plane that was identical to the one that crashed, a sister plane to it, and they dressed it up in the, uh, the, the number and everything of the crashed plane, and it was put on display there. They had a, a huge area where naval planes, Catalinas and all those sort of things were on display at the Naval Base in Jacksonville. And so I was invited to a ceremony there where they, uh, they uh, unveiled this exhibit and uh, gave Bob Petway some kind of medal from the Navy. And then we were taken round and uh, given a short flight on one of the planes that have replaced the Neptune now, the modern version of the plane. And I mean, I was very touched by uh, the captain's daughter called Patty. They lived on the Naval Air Force Base in Jacksonville. And she told me that uh, she was six years old at the time and uh, she'd heard her daddy had disappeared and wouldn't be coming home. And uh, they kept living on the Air Force Base for six months and then she, her mother and little brother, they were, they were kicked out and went to live in an apartment in Jacksonville town. And she was very upset about it because she said she looked out every morning cause to see if her, her daddy was coming up the path. He'd lost his plane so he'd have to walk back and uh, she expected to see him any time, but they'd moved out of the Air Force Base now and they wouldn't know where they, they wouldn't know where they were. I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next episode, we hear more from Emeritus Senior Scientist Niels Henriksen about the first geological survey mapping campaign in East Greenland in the late 1960s. 